You're listening to Two Guys Talking Wine with Michael Pincus and Andre Prue. Hello, Michael. Andre, uh, it's way too early. Why are you the one saying that? I'm the one who makes fun of you all the time for the fact that you're like in bed by like 6 p.m. and up by like 4. Uh, it's usually 5, but that's that's beside. I don't know. It's, you know, just there's some days that, and I and I know that everybody listening uh, can can you know can can attest to this as well. There are just some days where getting out of bed is the biggest struggle of your life. Like I, like I don't know what it is. Some days you hop out of bed and you're ready to go, and it can be four in the morning. Like yesterday, I got up at like three in the morning and I was jazzed and ready to go, and I could, and I spent the whole, you know. And then today, it was like I, I was like, I don't, I don't want to, you know, I don't even want to think about touching the floor. <laughs> I think I've got. My my geriatric hound Henry, he's training me for the impending impending arrival of the baby. He has started to act out a little bit. I mean, my dog is a nightmare with food. Like that's why we call him Sir Henry Von A Hole. But I think you can attest. You'll you'll agree. He's a pretty well behaved dog when it comes to like the important dog stuff. He doesn't normally pee or poo in the house. Uh, you know, he's pretty good on a leash. Like I think you can agree with me on that. That for the basic dog stuff he's pretty good yeah he, I, he, I i love henry i think he's a, uh, an absolute hoot uh, he, he has in, decided I to think. start he has decided to start peeing inside the house thankfully his spot is like on the hardwood but it's just like there's just something up he just knows there's something up and like last night he got up at 3 a.m and decided to go down the stairs by himself and so like i jumped out of bed to try to chase him down and Fortunately, got there in time. We haven't had an accident in about three weeks. But uh, anyways, I'm just getting used to like the random sleep cycle because my wife and I just like when the dog jumps out of the bed, one of us has to wake up to keep an eye on him to make sure he's not going to pee on something. Wow. And it's not and it's not a medical thing because there's been a few days we've had to leave him in his crate for, you know, six hours, seven hours. And we take him out pretty regularly, take him out right before bed, before any other dog owners reach out to us. Like I've had the dog for 12 years. I know his behavior is pretty well, but yeah. Anyways, yes. I I would I, I don't know what to say about that, but yeah, he is getting re- getting you ready. It was, totally it was the whole thing ready. is just like um, I'm I'm I think I've always been a morning person. I think that's just part and parcel of of working in ra- radio for twenty years, and it's just like now I'm becoming an all the time person because I got to be at a cat like state of readiness whenever it's time to get up. Well, I I just there's but you, do you do you have days where you just like I could stay here all day? Yes, I do. They're usually yeah. after a night of entertaining. Let's put it that way. I didn't entertain last night. I just, I just could not. Maybe it was the getting up at three o'clock the day before. <laughs> All right. So we are recording this bright and early on the morning of the twenty second, November seventeenth was and still remains one of my favorite days of the year. Not so much the the day itself, but the third Thursday in November. Michael, what was your favorite um, Beaujolais Nouveau this year that came in through the LCBO? Well, hold on. Uh, it was either the Norway um, or the. <laughs> uh, and, oh, you know what? Uh, there was no Beaujolais Nouveau this year. Yeah, there was no Beaujolais Nouveau this year, and <clears throat> not 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 saying that there wasn't a good Beaujolais Nouveau. We're saying there was no Beaujolais Nouveau. 
That's it. That's it. And there were a few people who I noticed on... I mean, it's it's the sort of thing where I, I, I think there's people who do some ribbing with each other, people who line up to do that. And I am one of those people. Like, I, I love doing the Beaujolais Nouveau parties and everything. But also, I fully recognize, like, here's the problem with what's happening in Ontario with Beaujolais Nouveau. One, it has gotten way too expensive for what it is. You oh, know, exactly. 100%. Like, like, I, can't, I can't argue with you there. Like, you know, you go to France. I was looking at my at my Facebook memories this week, and I went to France for uh, the Beaujolais Nouveau release in um, 2014. Sorry. Yes, 2014. Yeah, that's how time works. Um, and I remember visiting some some top, top producers. Dominique Perron, one of them. I know we mentioned them a lot on this podcast. Domaine de Vaurenard. And getting access to their Beaujolais Nouveau for three, four euros a bottle. And that's top tier Beaujolais Nouveau. The thing I have a hard time reconciling is even with the exchange, even with the taxes, these bottles of wine becoming 18, 19, $20 bottles of wine on the shelf of the LCBO. Because when you're getting to that price point, you're paying for, and I put it in, in air quotes, you, you could be getting real Beaujolais and you're almost pushing into crew Beaujolais prices at that price. Yeah. Yeah. Especially through the vintages, you sometimes see some really good crew Beaujolais at, you know, uh, $25. I know I've gotten some in the past for like $20. We've gotten some yeah, when we split, when, at $20. Like, I mean, and when we split the, the cases of Piron, we're usually getting that for about $30 a bottle. And it's just like, you know, we have to remember that, that Beaujolais Nouveau, Beaujolais Nouveau is delicious for about a three week window. And it's the three weeks after the third Thursday in November, then the fruit starts to fall off. Like it is an ephemeral product and it's fun for those three weeks of the year. And it's not meant to be expensive. It's meant to be a reason to get together with your friends and a reason to, to take a, a quick look at what the vintage conditions were like. But um, ten, twelve dollar bottle of wine at best. I'd agree with that. I'd, I'd push it. I'd push it to fifteen factoring and supply chain issues. Okay. Um, but anyways, here's the statement I got from the LCBO. Um, Hi, Andre. Thank you for your inquiry. Due to a poor harvest and increased supply chain costs, Beaujolais Nouveau is unavailable at the LCBO this year. While Beaujolais Nouveau is unavailable this year, please see other Beaujolais products that customers may enjoy. Pistru Beaujolais, Beauchene et Fils Beaujolais Supérieur, Dubeuf Beaujolais, Combe au Jacques Beaujolais Village Jadot. I mean, it's a short and sweet statement, but I mean, it, them admitting a supply supply chain costs, I think, is a is a key part of this. But are they costs, or, 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 are they, or are they talking about... Uh, and I, it, hell, I don't even know if you can answer this. Is it is it the cost, or is it the uh, the lack of grapes is basically what they're kind of saying in there as well. Well, they're saying both, but I mean, I, I sent you, and I, I posted it on Instagram a little while ago, my family in uh, in Saskatchewan was able to get their hands on Momassin and Dubuff Beaujolais Nouveau. So there was enough Beaujolais Nouveau to ship to Saskatchewan, which, um, statistically speaking, is the worst consumer of wine in the province. I'm not, if there's anyone in, in Saskatchewan listening to this podcast, I'm not saying you're bad consumers of wine. I'm just saying, statistically speaking, you guys purchase the least amount of wine in the country. So, you know, I just have a hard time understanding why uh, a larger market wouldn't be prioritized if you're looking to looking to export. Not to mention your costs. Your costs are probably higher to ship Beaujolais Nouveau to Regina, Regina than it is to Toronto. Yeah. Yeah. I, I Look, I jumped off the Beaujolais Nouveau train a long time ago. Uh, I think the last bottles I had was when the LCBO did their their tastings. Uh, and then, you know, at the end of the tasting, they'd say, oh, by the way, here's the Beaujolais Nouveau. And they'd put out six bottles and we'd all get to taste them. Um, 
And uh, I used to, when I, when I was teaching during Beaujolais Nouveau time, uh, and at times where I could, you know, be in, in the same room as people, I'd buy a bottle and, you know, we'd all talk about, you know, Beaujolais Nouveau and, and stuff like that. But I, I, I mean, I, I'm off the bandwagon. I don't know if a lot of people are. Um, just because I, I do love Cru Beaujolais and, and, and I get what Beaujolais Nouveau is all about. Uh, but I, I just, again, I think it's the cost and that really is the, the thing. Well, and I, I think, um, I think what we're seeing here is this highlights once again, the, the big problem with the LCBO and having the monopoly in the province and the lack of smaller import stores. Okay. If it is supply chain costs, you know, once again, why is our monopoly not bargaining on our behalf i know supply chain costs are what they are <clears throat> and notably speaking two big things that are expensive right now as of today are shipping and bottles so i can understand the lcbo being like oh okay this new is gonna be 25 dollars. let's do that but if you're ordering i don't know 500 cases of Dubuff from hamo Dubuff in 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 beaujolais i don't understand why you can't negotiate a better price for the consumers and like i said even if it becomes four four and a half euros per bottle how does that translate into 25 dollars? that's like a, a that's a restaurant markup basically well it's the lcbo my friend so i mean the question i have is is um why why aren't we ready to start opening things up a little bit more to allow agents to import better Beaujolais? because i think the number of people who are really excited about Beaujolais nouveau and i think you you highlighted it like perfectly fine and i think there's a lot of people like you where it's just like the allure of Beaujolais Nouveau is worn off when the price of the bottles go up, knowing what it is, and we'd rather just drink, for lack of a better term, real Beaujolais. I put that in air quotes. The number of people like me who it's it's become such an ingrained tradition as a wine lover that we'd go out of our ways to get it are small. But why don't we find a way to let our agents get these wines into the country easier? Let's get the Dominique Piron Beaujolais Nouveau. Let's get the Vaurenard Beaujolais Nouveau. Let's get some of the high-end producers' wines in on a smaller quantity because these are producers where... If it does become $25 a bottle, I'm happy to buy a bottle or two bottles to support the producer, but also to see what Nouveau can taste like in the hands of a, of a higher end producer. Um, you know, no knocks to, no knocks to Dubuff, because I think you and I can both agree that recently, since the, the passing of the Vieille Monsieur, like Georges, the quality of the wines coming through have gotten a bit better at the LCBO, but Georges Dubuff are not the flagship bearers for high quality wine from that region. Uh, no, no, I, 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 you know, I'm opening up some pretty good, uh, I opened up a Fleury, uh, not too long ago. I can't even remember the name of the, of the producer, but it was, it was delicious. It was light, it was, but it was a 2016. And, um, I, I, I think Beaujolais gets a, I think one of the problems with Beaujolais, if I can, if I can go off slightly on a tangerine, mm -hmm. Is that um, Beaujolais Nouveau kind of cheapened the brand? It did. I mean, hundred percent. Um, and people think of Beaujolais. Like, put it this way: like um, when I do uh, a wine tour, and um, sadly there are not a lot of, of Gamay producers in uh, Niagara on the Lake, um, and that's where we do a lot of our tours. Yeah, because uh, people are always like, "Oh, I like light and fruity," so I kind of have to you know, give them a little nudge towards Pinot. Uh, and I don't find Pinot light and fruity at most places, but, you well, know, they not want only, light, so not you, only, you not, kind of push not, Pinot. Sorry, not only that, but also, like, Pinot, Pinot, if you're a casual wine drinker in Ontario, is a big ask. It is expensive, you know, to yeah. go to 
and and that's the thing is like you and I as veteran wine lovers we understand that spending $45 on a leaning post pinot spending $45 on um on a pinot or $60 for a pinot at 5 rows you're getting a deal because once you get to France and I think it's safe to say that Ontario parallels I'm very careful in saying we're not as good as but I think there's a lot of parallels between Niagara and Burgundy you're getting a bargain when it comes to Pinot but when you're a new wine lover and you're making that leap from drinking you know $15 $20 Italian or entry-level Californian and to make that leap from or you know $15 $20 wines from Chateau de Charme or, or Trias to make that leap to $50 a bottle is a big ask of the consumer yeah, it's a, it's a tough one, and and as I said, it's it's sad that that you you know you don't because I get people on the tour and they go, oh, we really like light and fruity, and I said, well, you should try some Gamay, and like, great, where can we get some down here? And I'm like, you really can't. Um, like, yeah, who who are the Niagara great Gamay producers in in Niagara on the Lake? I uh, the only one I know is is Byland, and uh, mm. he's so small that uh, uh, he's got that he's he's the Bijou vineyard for for Batchelder. Yeah, and so even violent. even then, like there's some there's some weight to those wines. Yeah, well, it's Niagara on the Lake, right? But it's hard. And then and then when you, you start telling people, so oh, what's Gamay? I've never heard of Gamay. And you're like, well, that's the grape of Beaujolais. It's like people's face fall. Oh, you yeah. know what I mean? It's like, oh well, but I mean, but I mean that's it though. Is it's it's just. I think I've mentioned it on this podcast before is is great winemaking is when you can walk that line between art and business. And I hosted an event with Thomas Batchelder for Le Clos Jordan last week. And I'm I'm very fascinated to see what Artera is doing with the brand because it actually seems like they're doing a lot of things correct. And, and what the company doing across company, company wide, is they have just invested in some very good winemakers who understand the the climate well. We've had Levi Delorean on, on this on this podcast, and I can say, um, you know, there's this. I can't I can't 100 prove it. I haven't done a deep tasting, but since Levi has taken over the winemaking at Jackson Triggs, every sample I get from Artera with a Jackson Triggs label makes me quite excited to see it. And the two young guys now who are working at Inniskillen and Jackson Triggs as well, uh, Philip and Nick, are just like. It just seems like Artera is doing a good job at pulling the company away from that business, business, business side, pulling it back towards the art, getting really good winemakers connected to it. And the the connection I'm making here is to what happened with Beaujolais is Georges Duboeuf in the late 80s was printing money with Beaujolais Nouveau. My dad tells me stories of in Ottawa lining up outside the store that third Thursday in November because the market was excited for it. The people were excited about it. Grape isn't grapes are an agricultural product. There's a finite amount to it. So when you get to the point that you need to feed a full market, you basically have two choices to make. Find a way to make more, generally at the expense of quality, or let the market be satisfied with what you have. And this is hypo- hypothesis here, because I don't know George Dubuff. I don't know what his marketing people were like. I don't know what the money was looking like in the 80s. But this is anecdotally what sounds like happened. Well, I, I remember also in Ontario, uh, there used to be huge, um, you know, uh, newspaper articles in the like the entertainment section of the of the Toronto Star, uh, poo poo poo, um, <laughs> you know uh, that um, you know it's Beaujolais Nouveau Day, right? Go get your Beaujolais. It, it was it was big news. Well, even uh, even, there was even a bunch me- of no, they, they used to have big displays of Nouveau. That's it. I don't think I ever saw the big displays of the Nouveau, but I know that at the beginning of my writing career, like from I'd say from like. 
2010 to 2015, that was sort of like peak Nouveau. We had some Ontario producers who were making Nouveau. And I can say, now that I'm in the business of making a little bit of wine, there's a very good reason why Ontario producers do not make Nouveau. The harvest is a lot later here than it is in France, which makes it a challenge to hit that third Thursday in November. And, and, and you know what? They were they were not very good. They were I, not. I'm, I'm going to come right out and say it. They were not very good wines, period, the end. Full uh, stop. Anybody okay, making okay. Nouveau this year, sorry if you are. Ontario should not make a Nouveau-style wine. But but we but had, just, there was one year, and I, I'm not sure if you, well, I'm sure you remember it, but remember in 2012, though, but because of the unusually hot summer, like that was the only year that we've ever been able to make Nouveau. And it's just like, those are the growing conditions that are necessary to make decent tasting Nouveau is like, oh, we want to make Nouveau in Ontario. Well, let's just pray for a summer that's as hot as Satan's balls so that we can get the fruit ripe enough to make this wine, turn it around quickly and get it in the bottle for the third Thursday in November. Uh, I, I really didn't need that uh, visual, but thank you. You're welcome. I was, just, I was just more asking if you remember what the 2012 Nouveau tasted like, because I, I know Chateau de Charme made one at that point, and Rife was making one at that point. And just all for, also for the record, this year I saw Paradise Grapevine and Domendarius both made Nouveaux this year, which I haven't tasted, and uh, I don't want to say that either one of those wines are, are terrible, because um, they're generally things to look forward to. So, Well, I, I haven't tried them either, but in my experience, Ontario and Nouveau are just kind of... They they don't they don't go together, they really they really don't. So I've I've never tasted uh, well except for twelve maybe. I've never tasted Nouveau that I went. Wow, I'm really glad I paid the twenty five dollars for that. Well, I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's the other problem too. Is like we say, cost to cost to price. Correct. Um, I would, you know what? I hate to say it, but I I would rather that winemakers who decide to make a Nouveau, especially out of Gamay or whatever they do, put them into a premium wine. Just just don't. Don't try to compete with something that we can't compete with. Put it into like a pre- if you're going to make a nouveau cab franc, put them into a premium wine. Don't don't try to you know compete with 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 France. Well, and that's the other, and that's the other thing too. Where I, I know you and I have spent quite a bit of time talking about talking about Gamay, and I think every time we talk about it, we say that we should be talking about it a little bit more. If anyone wants to go back and listen to some of our episodes with uh, Shiraz Madiar from not 2022 but 2021. Um, one of the most exciting things about Gamay in Ontario is we haven't really, I don't think we, we've really developed like what Ontario's signature style in the grape is, what the climate is, what crew it might parallel in France, but that's not saying that the wines aren't really great because they are. And it's also exciting to see, um, you know, the future for Gamay in Ontario is quite bright. Well, I, I think Thomas is trying to, uh, trying to show us, show us that. And then, yeah, as as Thomas has tried to show us with Chardonnays and Pinots, that uh, you know Ontario can make great uh, great Gamay as well, and uh, I think I think you know I have to I have to say that's probably what excites me most about Thomas's project yes. these days, not the Chardonnays and Pinots, because I think he's proven that we make great Chardonnay and Pinot, and we have a lot of great Chardonnay and Pinot producers. We do, um, and, you know, if you let me sit here. And you sit on your side. I would bet you, uh, you know, if you said, you know, give me 10, um, you know, great Chardonnay and Pinot producers. And we wrote and then we compared lists. I would bet you that at least five or seven of them would match. And then somebody would say something and you go, oh, yeah, I forgot about that one. Right. Because we have so many good ones. Um, whereas Gamay, that's very, it's very small. 
And I really like that Thomas is pushing the envelope with Gamay. But the good news, um, but the good news about Gamay though is the people who are doing it is it's just like we could make a list of the good Gamay producers and it sums most of them up. Like one of my favorites is Vienni. And um like Vienni has a portfolio where it is a little bit mixed, especially for you and I. Like there's some hits and there's some misses in that portfolio, but their Gamay is always, always really good. Uh and and I can include them in that other handful, 13th Street, um, Malavoir, Thomas Batchelder. Um uh, Rockway made it Rockway made a pretty solid gamay that uh you know, full full disclosure. It's a place where ADX makes their wines. I, I liked it. I, I found it a little I found market. it a little light, but I did enjoy it. Yeah, um, I, I mean it was it was good. <laughs> I mean, they're selling it for nineteen bucks a bottle. And um you know, it's right on par with what it's you're going to pay for a decent quality village at the LCBO anyway. So I think it fits right where it needs to. And I think um, I think Byland uh, again uh, in Niagara and Lake, he's doing a good job. I, he's only had like two vintages of it because obviously Thomas found him, and then and then suddenly you know now he can make uh, Gamay on his own. But but he got he got Ann Sperling to make his his Gamay. And to tell you the truth, I don't think I've ever had an Ann Sperling Gamay. Oh, I don't know. That was the light. first time I'd ever had one, and I was like, man, this is this is really good. Who knew Anne could play with the uh, Gamay as well as everything else she plays with? I mean, so it's one thing. I, I did um a quite epic tasting with Thomas on Saturday. Uh I bought three bottles of, of wine to round out what I'd already purchased. Um so two bottles of Chardonnay and one bottle of Pinot. But we tasted a few bottles of Gamay, but it's one of the things where you know, Thomas is experimenting with um, the amount of full cluster that ends yep. up in his in his winemaking, and I think that's fascinating. That's very important. I think that the the one thing I don't I know Thomas listens to this uh, once in a while, but I think the one thing missing is I was I was bugging him a little bit. We need to find a way to get him doing some carbonic maceration with some of his his winemaking. Is that something that um, Shiraz is experimenting with? I think with quite a bit of success. It, I'm just curious to see what uh, Thomas would do with that style. <laughs> Well, I wonder if it's uh, just um, you know uh, equipment, right? Yes, yeah. Um, no, he mentioned it. Sorry, that's the other. I guess sort of full full disclosure is uh, last time we did talk a uh, talk with him, we we asked him because we've heard it's not just you and I, but there have been some people who will be critical of Thomas's style of gamay of just being like, well, it's he treats it like Pinot, and we talked to him about that. And he's like, well, he does. In his, according to Thomas, he says he doesn't treat it like Pinot; he treats it like gamay, but his equipment setup doesn't allow for pumping in co2 letting the fermentation take place blah 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 what you need to do to make carbonic maceration so uh, but you know i think thomas is on the right path though looking for those really crew-like vineyards and then i think yes you know people like um like shiraz over at malavoir and and other people you know can start doing the heavy lifting on that on that part um and then you know maybe maybe thomas does come in but i think i think you know Thomas does what he can with his budget, with his wines, blah, blah, blah. But, um, you know, there are, you know, other companies doing it as well. As you said, Malavoir, let them play with Carbonic, see how it works. Yep. You know, I I have to believe that uh, that Thomas and Shiraz, you know, uh, have a monthly meeting at some point. <laughs> no, I'm sure I'm sure you're you're correct. And I mean, it's like I said, like it's sort of like we're, we're seeing pieces of the puzzle come together in, you know, hopefully in 20 years, we'll see Gamay wider planted with more people experimenting with it where... We have Shiraz leading the way with um, carbonic maceration and the winemaking, also experimenting with full cluster winemaking. 
and Thomas uh, once again making sure that we're on the the front line of terroir and what different parts of Niagara taste like. So we ended up talking about Gamay a lot more than I thought we would, considering this was just supposed to be a rant about how the LCBO has failed us yes again, yet again. Well, yeah. Well, you could get on uh, get on your high horse, and each one of us could write a speech about how the LCBO has failed us, not just with Gamay, but on on many things. So. Yeah, I, I, I'm really happy that we were able to uh, to unpack Gamay a little more uh, in Ontario. We we were going to talk about uh, about uh, Brunello, but we can do that on a, on another. Uh, I think a, I another think, podcast. I yes. think we're not. We weren't going to talk about Brunello. We were going to talk about an observation that you made at a Brunello tasting, and this is something that is also oh, yeah. a pet peeve of mine. And you know, this is another. I guess full disclosure. I'm saying full disclosure and mea culpa a lot on this. It's just like um, as wine writers. And as wine professionals, if you're not one of those people listening to this podcast, we are privileged enough to often get invited to events, to tastings, tastings that are hosted, to events that are hosted by wine consortios, consortios, oh my god. Consortios by uh, agents, by uh, people who put on events. Like, there are event people who get, you know, consortios have to, re- obviously, they can't put it on themselves, they have to get out to people and that's the thing is uh, and events like that are are important for michael and i because it gives us the ability to have access to content um that we can now share with the listeners and our readers and and everyone who has a chance to access our platforms um i know that right. I, I guess okay so I, I i went to this this brunello event it was you know very similar to the one that happens it, it was actually uh brunello day yeah and uh Simultaneously, well, not simultaneously because of the time difference, but on the same day, uh, in Montalcino, in New York, in Toronto, uh, and in London, I believe, were those the four locations they did it because they were the, the the biggest markets for uh, for Italian wine are are the UK, Canada, and the US. Um, so they decided to put on this, you know, Brunello tasting. There was over a hundred wines, uh, reservas. They were showing off the 2000, uh, 2018s, and uh, Toronto, and I've noticed it many times, but it was really, really stark uh, looking at it here. Toronto, you suck. Your Somal- the sommeliers suck. Writers suck. Like I, I can't say it any better than that. Like my God, they had they had a hundred and twenty people RSVP to the morning alone, and fifty didn't show up 50 with no email no sorry i can't make it just didn't show up i sat next to a guy whose wife is a chef she was like she was like i would love to go to that so i could help pair our our our, you know food with it she couldn't get in couldn't get in sold out and 50 people didn't show and it's not just at this brunello event it's at so many events in toronto you see so many empty tables you see so many name badges that have been printed up and at the end of the day they have to swipe them into the garbage like my god people wake up you are so lucky to get invited to these things we are so lucky as an industry to have people come through toronto it's not just that, that. want to see us it, it's it's also <clears throat> it's also just the golden rule it's um you know it's, it's something that I'm I'm actually I'm happy that the pandemic has brought to light is um, bringing tasting fees out in Niagara 
Uh, I think a lot of people used to treat a day in Niagara as a free pub crawl. And it's just like you don't get to walk into a restaurant, sample everything on the menu, walk out without paying. And we're seeing a a shift in really kind of shifting the way the industry works. But it takes money every time. I, I, I don't open my wine for tasting when I sell them at the farmer's market because I make so little of it. But also the number of people, thanks to the pandemic, who are looking for tasting are generally people who are just looking for tasting, with a, with a couple of exceptions. I had a really great conversation with a young woman at the market last week where she asked about sampling, and I was just like, well, I'd really rather taste it before buying it. And then I explained, like, you know, if I open up a bottle of, of wine to, 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 to sample at the market, the amount of sales it's going to yield me are likely going to be so small that if I do this with every farmer's market, you know, that's another case and a half, two cases of wine I can't sell. That's $400 down the drain that I can't turn into other wine. And she's like, oh, that makes a lot of sense. Anyways, that's the whole thing where organizing an event, making a, curating a list, finding people that are part of your target market that you want to taste the wines takes a lot of work. And it also takes money. It takes time. It takes money to, if you get 120 RSVPs, to plan for enough product for that, to print up the materials, to do the place settings, to order enough food if you're serving even appetizers or canapes. So like it's just like yeah, it's a pretty crappy thing and it's and it's a, and it's a sense of entitlement if you are speaking to something. Like if you're not uh, look I get the idea and I've had it myself. Something comes up on that day. You like I don't know how many times it happens at 9 in the morning that you go oh sh- now I can't go. Um but you know, you pretty much know a couple of days in advance. Send them an email so that they can open. They always say they have a wait list. I don't know if there really is a wait list, but I mean, let them know a few days in advance. Send a dang email for God's sakes. Don't just let it go. You are costing people money. You are costing people maybe their job because if they don't, if people don't show up, then what happens is the the company that that hired the the event company. Uh, then go. Oh, you couldn't. You couldn't deliver for us. We're moving on to somewhere else. Or you yeah. know what? We're not coming back to Toronto. And that's yeah. what ends up. That's that's the bottom line. Is that people either will lose their job from it, or a, a, a producer, uh, a company, a consortio will decide Toronto's not worth it to us anymore. And then what? And then what do we do? We watch it go to Vancouver. Yeah. Um. I think that's all we have to say about that. Yeah, we can close that one up. Um, are you excited for the middle of December and what's coming out on TorontoLife.com? Do you know what? I'm excited for the, for the, for the part before that. I think everybody should be excited for what's coming out in the middle of, of December, but I'm kind of looking forward to putting that piece together. Like I do every single year. Yeah, so you know what? I'm going to I'm going to so Michael and I are writing the Toronto Life gift wine gift guide again this year. This is our third year doing the Christmas one. We used to do the monthly one. Yeah, this yeah. is our third year doing the the Christmas one. I thought it was our fourth year, but okay. I'll go with it. Could you. be it could be our fourth year. I mean, it all kind of ble- blurs together because I don't know. We 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 started doing it when we about a year after we started doing this podcast. So, figure that out. I think, okay, so I think the first year we did it, though, we had help from the LCBO, where we still had access to the lab, and we were yeah, able yeah, to yeah, taste. Yeah. Okay, okay. Yeah. okay, so the, it's been the past three years that we've had the the insane opening of all the wine in my home, um, where we do the where we do the tasting, and the past couple of years, we've done it with a bit of a panel, a panel of like-minded people to help us narrow it down, because when you taste 100 plus wines in a night, 
it's a lot of work. I mean, it's the sort of thing where when you when you talk to people and you're just like, oh, I'm I'm doing this Toronto Life thing. The way um, my co-writer and I, the way Michael and I do it, is we plan for a day where we know that we've got a good six hours dedicated to tasting all the wines, scrutinizing them fairly. And it's just like, oh my god, that just sounds like so much fun. And then you're just like, hang on, let's paint a picture for you. There's going to be 120 bottles of wine open, and probably hopefully a little bit more open in my house. And we have to pick the best ones. Like, let's actually stop and think about that. I'm well, not, I'm not, wow, 100 bottles of wine. I could t- I could do that. And that's it. And it's just ma- like it's amazing how many people get through 10 and go, I can't do this. And that's the thing. It's just like I don't want to say that we're doing we're doing God's work, but it's just one of these things where it's a lot of work to put this together. So yeah. I think the first thing I do before maybe we talk a little bit more about what we're going to be doing is I want to express some gratitude to the wineries of Ontario. We have a few agents as well who um, have got their bottles to us and we really appreciate it just because we don't have the support of the LCBO in putting this piece together. um, The support from you, from you who work in Ontario, the wineries of Ontario, you who work for the agents, we know that we just talked about um, it costing money to put something together. We know it costs money to ship bottles to us. It costs money if you have to pull bottles out of inventory and pay for them yourselves as part of your marketing. And uh, we appreciate it, but... um, the response from the wineries of Ontario has been excellent, and a lot of people who work in the industry listen to this podcast, and I want to thank them for stepping up and helping us make sure that um, you know objective, independent wine journalism is still alive and well. We're doing our best. We are doing our best, and we're looking forward to you having you having you read it, and we're looking forward to tasting for it, and we're gonna we're gonna you do our utmost. I guess to uh, to get you the best uh, uh, sparkling wines, uh, gift wines, and wines under twenty dollars for the season, so that you uh, you you spend your money wisely. Um, and we always always like to uh, always throw in some uh, some local stuff as well. Uh, I think Toronto Life is very good about letting us uh, uh, have free reign and get the local stuff in. Well, like and, I, like I said, uh, like given the response from the local wineries from Ontario and taking a look at the wines that have been sent to us um you know just historically speaking there's a bunch of stuff that we haven't tasted in a while i don't want i don't want to give a shout out to to any wineries yet to let people think that they're going to get a sneak peek of what's in the in the article but it's just like there's some stuff that's coming to us which is like oh i forgot that that was in, in a, a vintage is essential oh because i just i don't buy ontario wine from the lcbo very often i'd rather buy from the the wineries direct so i don't even know what's a vintage is essential anymore and it's just like it's it's exciting it is exciting to see what we're going to get to taste like when you have a good idea of who a good producer is and uh yeah getting a getting a look at what's what's coming down the pipe yeah so we're uh, we're doing that in uh, i think in 2 weeks we're doing the tasting so yes so uh, if you are listening to this and you didn't get our call out um we are looking for wines unfortunately wines that need to be available at the LCBO just because Toronto Life wants Basically, they want people to be on their phones with the list. And I've heard from quite a few of our readers that it's just like, oh, my God, Andre, I, I had your list on my phone for, uh, you know, like January to March last year. And when I went to the LCBO, I was always looking for these wines, which was like a, it was a nice thing to hear. It was nice to hear that our, our work pays off. And yep. um, yeah, I, I know the clear standout from last year was the Chateau Le Grand Retour, uh, Côte du Rhône, uh, Plan de Dieu, that... Uh, we were surprised that our whole panel for everyone was just like, "Yep, that's the that's the one." Yeah, I, re- I really like Planted You. I really do. Although, uh, first time I've opened one up that was not as good. 
But <laughs> well, there's vintage. There's vintage variation. I know they've moved on. Well, to- I mean, I, I held mine a little longer than I probably should have, and I was like, oh, yeah, that was a drink now wine for sure. Yeah, but it was a it was a different one. It wasn't the Grand Retour, but the Grand Retour is always really good and aged. It's uh, it's nice as well. But I I had an off brand producer, and I but you know because I'm always I like I also drink regionally, not just producer. Yeah, right. Like you see a plan to do, and you're like, yeah, I'm gonna buy that one. And it's you know usually twenty bucks. So I, I don't know if anyone doesn't know Plan de Dieu. So Plan de Dieu is um, it's a Cote du Rhone sort of like almost sub AOC. I think they're like if it says Plan de Dieu, so it's a plot that's just like it's just not quite good enough to be Chateau Neuf du Pape. And correct, it's just right next door, like yeah. literally right next door. And it's like if they, if they were if they were twenty kilometers the other way, it'd be Chateau Neuf du Pape. And I, I think it's I think it's hilarious because like Rhone Village is usually a pretty good place to get um get a bargain anyways, um but it's just like yeah the concentration the depth and like when you, when we get to this part of the winter where it gets really cold I really enjoy the like the very big Rhone wines yeah they get um, what is it they tingle your somethings or others <laughs> they make my balls tingle that's what I'm looking for <laughs> <laughs> oh man. And yeah, I, I, you know, so I just love the name of it too, because Plan de Dieu means plains, plains of God or plan of God. Plan, plan of God, plan of God. So I mean, it's something I've been just saying is it's just like as as we're following Thomas's adventure into Niagara, what the Grand Cru sites might be. It's just like you know, the, the thing I've been telling people is just like there's certain parts of Niagara that have been touched by God, because regardless of conditions, you can get decent fruit from them. But I don't ever want to see Grand Cru in Niagara, and that's another topic for another time. righty. Shall we wrap it up and get on with our morning? Yeah. Uh, I'm Andre Proof from AndreWineReview.ca. Follow me on Instagram and Twitter at AndreWineReview. I said that weird. Sorry. Yeah, that sounded very strange. Um, you want to take it again? Patreon.com slash Two Guys Talking Wine. Okay. Thank you. If uh, anybody wants to uh, uh, give to the cause there, we uh, we greatly appreciate it. I'm Michael Pincus of MichaelPincusWineReview.com. You can find me on uh, social media as The Grape Guy uh, or as Michael Pincus or as Michael Pincus Wine Review. How about that? Just to confuse things. Andre, you have yourself a great day. You too. And uh, as for me, good night. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe to Two Guys Talking Wine on iTunes. Two Guys Talking Wine is produced by Jim Ray, Adam Duran, and Ken Little.